Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Ministry of Our Lord. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Search for Greatness. There is no point in denying it. Even though we may protest to the contrary, it's still true. We are all concerned about our status in life. We don't want the title loser. It's a lot of years ago now when Billy Joel produced his very famous song, Piano Man. It's a story of his own experience as a bar singer and piano player, that is, before he became famous. So he tells the stories of the interactions he had with the patrons of the bar. One man is a man named John who says, I'm sure I could be a movie star if I could get out of this place. Another man named Paul is called a real estate novelist. That means he sells real estate, but inside he knows that the next great novel could flow from his pen. And the waitress in the bar, well, she's practicing politics because she really knows that if she were given a chance, she'd do much better than others. And the businessman, well, he's lost all dreams for greatness and he's simply sitting in a corner He's getting stoned. As Billy Joel sings and as the crowd gathers to hear him, just for a while, they forget about the failures of their lives and then some are heard to remark to the bar singer, man, what are you doing here? You could do better than this bar singer gig. You've got a thing going. Your name could be in lights. And of course, the irony of the song is that Billy Joel really did so much better. He did get out of the bar and he became a singing sensation but I strongly suspect he might just well have been the only one who got that far. I say all of that because there is a hunger in the human soul that we could be something greater than we are. It leads for many people to strive for more, but but failing to realize our dreams. Eventually, we become just like the businessman in the corner of the bar who's drinking until he forgets the pain of the crushing of his dreams for greatness. All human beings search for something greater. There must be more than this. I could, if I could get the proper breaks, achieve something memorable. I've met countless people who have got that book they'd like to publish, that position they'd like to attain to, that that dream they'd like to fulfill. And here's a little secret. As we've been studying Matthew chapters 19 to 20, it seems as if Jesus has been feeding that hope. Remember what he said to the 12? Matthew 19, 28, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's not that Jesus is turning off the tap of desire for greatness, but he is redirecting where it is and what they should seek. And that's the lesson we'll take from today's study. You're not being asked to turn off the desire for greatness but you will be asked to give up all hope about where it is to be attained. It won't be in this life. Your hope will have to be in the world to come. Can you handle that? Let's go to our text. We start with Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, on the surface of it, you might think there's nothing wrong with asking. 
I mean, this mother seems to already know that her two sons will occupy two of 12 thrones. So why not ask for the ones that are closest to the ultimate throne, the throne of Jesus? I mean, why not try one step further up? And let's also notice that she came kneeling before Jesus. So she's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's going to govern all the works of God's hands. She does believe in him. But of course, this is really a distasteful thing. You know, some parents seem intent on doing this very thing, constantly advocating for their kids. You know, I I want little Johnny or Susie to get the lead role in the church or the Sunday school musical. I mean, why can't Johnny play center forward for the hockey team? I mean, he should be on the first line. Or why can't Susie be given the role of the class valedictorian? I mean, there are parents who are intent on advocating so hard for their kids that the rest of us are in danger of suffocating. I mean, no one likes advocating parents. Now, now in her defense, let me suggest that, that she herself might have been set up. I can't say it with certainty, but I do know that in Mark's account of this matter, Mark doesn't even mention the mother at all. Mark simply says it was James and John doing the asking, which tells me that Mark is communicating to us that it really was James and John's idea. At the very least, mother and sons are in complete agreement on this matter, and the two sons knew exactly what their mother was doing and asking. And because we know this, this strikes me as curious. Jesus has just finished telling the twelve that he's going to Jerusalem and that he's going to be arrested and mocked and flogged and crucified on a cross. And how is it then that from all of that, this very next incident occurs? But as strange as the timing of this request seems, it is just perhaps a little less strange than we might imagine. And consider that our attitude today is very similar. I mean, for 2,000 years, we've been reading Jesus' teaching to the church and to believers. We read about Jesus calling us to deny ourselves, to lay down our lives for one another. And we can read in the rest of the New Testament the teaching that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but in love we are to place the needs of others beyond our own. Yet, it's not just James and John who want the highest place. We all do. And we may imagine that we're shocked by this request, but in truth we're not. It's easy to see ourselves in these two men. We all want to be recognized for more than we are. We could be more. And besides, they might have said, we now understand that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, but then he also said he'd rise from the dead. That must mean that the kingdom of God is about to be revealed and the long-expected messianic age, it's about to break in upon us. And since that's about to happen, Well, we want the seats of greatest honor in the world to come. And since we assume that all of this is going to happen very, very quickly now, we've got to seize the moment. We've got to get in our request now. That is the opening drama. So let's continue to read Matthew 20, verses 22 to 23. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. There's something in our English text that's lacking. When Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, the you is a plural you. Remember that the mother of the two disciples has posed the question, but Jesus doesn't answer her directly. Rather, he addresses her and James and John. 
That is, all of you. You've conspired to come up with this request. All of you don't know what you're asking. You're all in the dark. That's why you've had this conversation among yourselves. And so Jesus responds to their request with a question of his own. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, we have to stop here and ask whether or not James and John would have understood this question or how would they have understood this question? Well, I think they might have understood it very well. It's because there's a powerful biblical image of the cup that might well have spoken to these men. You might want to think about Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. So, in a well-known passage about the cup, the cup is the cup of suffering, and more than that, it's the cup of suffering under the hand of God, under his wrath. That same image is found in Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So please keep in mind that Jesus has just been talking about going up to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified, and that now he presents an image of the cup to these two men, along with a well-known Old Testament image, So I can't imagine that James and John thought that Jesus was telling them anything other than this, that they needed to drink the cup of suffering in order to obtain the glory that they were asking for. And they, in an act of expressed loyalty to Jesus, say, yes, we can drink this. And please remember that it was Peter who would later say to Jesus, I want you to know that if everyone deserts you, I, for my part, will never do it. You know, it's amazing to me how the disciples assumed a greater commitment level than they actually had. In that sense, I fear that they're like all of us. We all overrate ourselves. We're excited at Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, to announce a national virtual ministry event this September 27th called The Gathering. Join us in celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching its truth to a new generation. So we invite you to join us on Facebook Live September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, right across the nation with special guests Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced. Join us for music, Bible teaching, laughter, ministry news, and more. Find out more at backtothebible.ca slash events. Visit the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Join us Sunday, September 27th for The Gathering. When James and John assured Jesus they would be able to drink any cup of suffering, Jesus responds by assuring them they will drink of his cup. Not only would Jesus suffer, but so would James and John. And in the case of James, Acts 12, verse 2, James became the first of the twelve who suffered a martyr's death. Herod, we are told, killed him with a sword. 
And John, as we know from the book of Revelation, would spend a considerable amount of time being exiled on the island of Patmos. Yeah, it's true. They would drink of Christ's cup, so they would partake of his sufferings. But now Jesus tells them that the decision of who receives the greatest honor in the kingdom of God would not be his to give. Those positions would be determined by the Father's decree. Furthermore, we do know that later on in Matthew 24, Jesus would teach that the actual timing of the coming age, well, that would be determined only by the Father. And furthermore, in the next chapter, in chapter 25, Jesus himself would separate the human race as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so, Jesus is given the role to judge the nations, but the actual designations of the greater glory of the elect, well, that would be determined by the Father. So Jesus simply refuses their requests. The economy of the Trinity demands that there would be a unique role played by the Father, another played by the Son, and still another by the Holy Spirit. It is the Father uniquely who will determine who receives the greatest honor in the world to come. Now, of course, on this point, that there will be a greater and lesser degree of honor in the age to come, that idea has filled some of us with some degree of anxiety. But let me put some of our fears to rest. One of the wonderful things about the age to come is something we can scarce imagine in this age. What I mean is, you know, we need to imagine a world where envy and a continual desire to be more important than someone else will no longer be a part of the human psyche. For instance, think about James 4, 1 to 2. Now there, James asks the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? You might want to think about the motivation for so many of human antagonisms to other human beings. And we want something, says James, and then we, we find that we can't get what we want, so we covet what they have, and we're enraged that we don't have it, and yet it's not withheld from them. And so we fight and we quarrel, and we even go to war. Now, in the age to come, when we're glorified, all these impurities will have been washed away. We're going to look at what someone else has, not with the jaundiced eye of envy, but rather with a thankful spirit, giving glory to God for the blessing that man or woman has received from the Lord himself. Does that seem almost incomprehensible to you? Now, while it's true that Christ wants us to seek the reward that he offers, he offers us reward not so that we can become more esteemed than the other. Rather, he offers us a reward so that we can become overwhelmed by his grace, thankful for his blessings. And that's what's wrong with the request of James and John. They want greater honor than others. You know, for them, their joy consists of this, that they've done better than someone else, rather than that they've been given grace from the Father. Now watch what happens next, Matthew 20, verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. (laughs) Please read this with understanding that the ten are exactly like James and John. And why are they indignant? Well, now, the answer must be that they're upset that James and John would be getting a more exalted place than they would get. And does it strike you that so much of human motivation is due to our desire to be first? You know, in a free market economy, you might think, well, that's exactly how it is. Competition is a good thing. It makes people better. It makes us produce better. It lifts the entire economy. It's true. One-upmanship does motivate us all along. But what if it were different? What if we were motivated not by beating someone else, 
but by the glory of God. I wonder, can you imagine such a reality? Let's keep reading. Matthew 20, verse 25 to 27. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This has often been called the new values of the kingdom or how the people of God are called upon to live. You know, in the world as a whole, says Jesus, we love to honor the winners. Winners are given power over others. Winners have resources that losers will never have. Winners are glorified in movies and books. Losers are only remembered to the extent that they were vanquished by the winners. Indeed, this idea is so entrenched in human thought that it's a wonder how those of us who have not become the rulers, the ones who exercise authorities, I mean, how do we survive? It was Henry David Thoreau who once wrote, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. It's a frightening picture of the human condition. It's it's the heart's cry that says, I didn't measure up. I wasn't the greatest. I didn't seize my destiny. I just I just worked a regular job. I went home in the evening and then went out to work the next day again. They were never adoring fans. My name was never recognized. I have no literature extolling my successes. I ruled no man. Indeed, it was other men, bosses and generals and politicians who ruled over me. The lifestyle of the rich and famous, well, now, I might have dreamt it could have become mine, but it will never be. These men and women do remain quiet. They're seldom seen raging at the failed vision of their lack of success. But they're like the businessmen that Billy Joel spoke about, getting drunk in a bar, trying to anesthetize the pain of their failure. In a world in which we have all lived, only the elite reach their dreams. And then, as Thoreau reminds us, there are the rest who live lives of quiet desperation. We are the ordinary. We may have worked hard, but we have not been noticed, and we simply carry on, and we have grown from within. Ah, says Jesus, that may be how the world works. Notice carefully his words in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. See, Jesus demands that among his followers, it will be a different ethic. If you want greatness and look, we all do. And I hope I've made that point clear. But if we want greatness, says Jesus, that in his kingdom, it's achieved in another way. You've got to become a servant. You've got to serve both God and man. You've got to be comfortable with the life of being a slave to others. But how can we sustain that? Are we really to assume that that this is any more than an ideal? I mean, is it really possible that instead of having a savage race to the top, we actually seek to lay aside our own ego and help others, serve others, minister to others, seek the welfare of others? But notice that Jesus isn't done. We're going to need an example as to how it's done. And so, since Jesus has just told them about the awful truth that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified, and now, when he turns on its head the way to become great, he then adds the words that have been memorized and repeated. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In just a short while after this, the disciples would gather in the upper room, and there Jesus would strip off his shirt and take a bowl in his hands, and then go from disciple to disciple and wash their feet. And after he is done, he would say, learn from me and copy me. Wash each other's feet, just as you have seen I have done. 
And then Jesus speaks the most profound truth of all. He has come not to lord it over people, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom was, you know, in the ancient Greek word, a technical term. It was used to pay money so that a slave could be set free. And notice that our English text says a ransom for many. The Greek word for is the word anti. It means in place of. And so a literal translation would say something like this, that he would give his life as a ransom that was paid in place of many imprisoned slaves. And of course, that is the gospel. Jesus said, look at me. Did I attempt to lord it over you? Instead, I have come to give my life in substitute for yours. That was the great thing that I did. And of course, as we know, Jesus is specifically referring to his cross where his life was the ransom so that many slaves of the law and of Satan and of sin would go free. That's greatness. That, from the world's perspective, is the worst thing you can do, to give yourself up so that slaves can go free. But Jesus did exactly that. And he, as you will remember, has inherited the greatest of all names. Oh my, oh my, think of this. If you want to become truly great, then give your life, sacrifice yourself for others. Take the lowest place. Do not seek the place of honor. Sacrifice your honor to others, and then you will be counted among the greatest of the earth. That's a promise from Christ. Great message today, John. You know, you'd think or hope that the church would be different, but but we do have a tendency to exalt those we esteem and overlook those we identify as, as less remarkable. Yeah, you know, I think 1 Corinthians 12, that passage on spiritual gifts, talks about those gifts that, um, you know, are more hidden. God has provided greater honor. And, and I think probably we need to, to practice that. That doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't speak highly of our leaders. The Bible tells us to do so. Those that stand up front should be esteemed properly. However, at the same time, we also need to esteem those who, you know, have a gift of helps, those who have gifts of encouragement, and, and uh, those who do those kind of things that we hardly even notice and yet provide so much value in the kingdom of God. Uh, I can't tell you how many people who, uh, you know, either new believers or thinking about the faith encountered somebody who loved and cared, and that became such a profound motivator for them to want to be a part of the, the people of God. So, you know, these things are important lessons, and we need to continue to be taught them. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, The Ministry of Our Lord, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, is essential. 
To discover more about these ministries or to find out about our national ministry event, The Gathering, this coming September 27th, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.